We are continuing this morning with our brief um, gospel intermission as we transition from a finished study of the book of Acts and prepare to begin a summertime series on the book of Psalms, a very small part of the book of Psalms, I should say. And thus far, we've, uh, in looking back at the gospels, we've looked at Jesus' identity in Luke 8, and then at what Jesus had to say about greatness in Luke 9. This morning we will look at what Jesus has to say about loving our neighbors in Luke 10 through the story that is commonly referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan, a title that, as I hope to show, is extremely unhelpful and which I believe sets you up to completely miss the point of the story. Before we look at that together, let's pray. Father in heaven, please attend now to this reading of your word and help us to hear your voice speaking to us through these scriptures and give us a fresh understanding of these truths that you have so faithfully provided and preserved for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've spent... um, any time at all in churches, this may be one of the more familiar passages to many people here and probably one of the most familiar passages in all of Scripture. And as some of you have heard me say on previous occasions, uh, the problem with familiar stories is that they are very hard to hear. Because as soon as they start, we say to ourselves, oh yes, I know this story, and we go on to autopilot, and we really stop listening. I understand how that happens. It happens to me sometimes. However, let me encourage you to take a chance this morning to turn off the autopilot and go on manual for a while, and by so doing, give yourself an opportunity to hear this story, maybe for the first time ever. Before we read this passage, I'd like to say something about it. It's printed in your bulletin there. But as we work our way through, you'll notice that this passage has two sections which are similar in structure. Verses 25 to 28, you have one section. Verses 29 to 37, the other. Both parts develop in exactly the same way. In both sections, a question is asked by an expert in the law. In both sections, a counter-question is asked by Jesus. In both sections, the expert responds correctly. And in both sections, Jesus commands him to practice what he's preaching. So the two sections are closely related. The first one sets the stage for the second one. Both have some concerns of their own, and we're going to look at those. However, we also need to see the the whole passage together as one piece. Otherwise, we'll miss some very important truths. So let's start by looking at the first section. And the first thing I want you to notice as we look at the parable of the Samaritan is what this passage is saying about law-keeping. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this. And you will live. So here we have an expert in the law, a lawyer, 
Now, you need to know that this is not a lawyer in the sense that you and I know it today, of course, that law referred to here is not civil law, but rather it was the law of God. That was the basis for their social law back in the day. And so a lawyer was one who understood well the Bible and specifically the Old Testament scriptures. At any rate, this lawyer stands up and is looking to test Jesus Perhaps catch him out on some small detail or technicality of the law. And I gather, likes his chances maybe of showing Jesus up just a little bit. So he asks what might appear on the surface to be an innocent question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But you see, there's nothing innocent about a question that isn't a real question. You know what I mean? I think we've all been in situations where someone formally asks us something that you know they already have an answer for. And so the question in that instance is simply a launching pad that they hope to use as a means of impressing you with how much they know. Well, that's what's going on here, and Jesus knows that, of course. He knows he's being tested, but he goes along for the ride anyway. He can see that this man is dying to speak to grace everybody present with his great wisdom and learning. So Jesus makes it easy for him. What's written in the law, he asks. How do you read it? And the lawyer, only too happy to reply, says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbors yourself. And then in response, and just as the lawyer would have expected, Jesus gives him very high marks. You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will live. Does that sound odd to any of you? Do this, and you will live. I ask you, what kind of an answer is that? Do this, and you'll live? Seriously, that's Jesus' responses, and Jesus understands that we're justified by grace through faith. Doesn't the entire New Testament teach that we're saved by grace and not works? What's going on here? Do this and live? Of course, Jesus knows exactly what he's saying. He's 100% correct. What he said to that man was absolutely true. If that man were to fulfill those two commandments, he would stand upon his own merits, perfectly justified before the Lord, in terms of obedience at least. But then there's, there's the problem, you see. The problem with that little word, If. See, when the New Testament teaches us that we are saved by grace and not by rule keeping, it is not in any way belittling or lessening the importance of God's law. You know, things like, you shall not lie, you shall not steal, etc. Those are good things. The law is a good thing. The problem is not with the law, it never has been the problem. As Paul says in Romans 7.12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is not with the law, it is with us. With the coming of the law comes the knowledge and the proof of our sin. Just as the posting of a speed limit sign brings knowledge not only of speeding, but of a desire to speed and ignore these ridiculous people who want to control how fast we drive on the streets. When Adam, as our representative, sinned in the garden years ago, when he fell into sin, he drug every one of us down with him. 
His enduring legacy to us is a rebellious, God-rejecting nature. And this nature, which the Bible calls a sin nature, makes us both unable and, more than that, unwilling to obey God's law. And so, returning to the passage, it is precisely at this point that the arrogance of the lawyer in this story is seen. Because this man's assumption was that he was both able and willing to do what is required if only Jesus will spell it out for him. Now certainly this lawyer, being a God-fearing person, would have no doubt kept these two commands to a degree. Perhaps he would have scored very highly compared with many of his peers. That's probably why he felt so confident to approach Jesus on this matter. Because he was pretty sure he had this one nailed down. But the problem was his standards. They were too low. His standard was something like, you know, near enough is good enough, or maybe better than the next guy, something like that. But it's like being the fastest kid in your school in the 100-yard dash, but then you go to a district meet and you discover maybe you're not as fast as you thought. And then you go to a state meet and the news gets worse. And then you discover there's such a thing as a national competition to which you're not even invited because you're not fast enough. This young man had a standard, and according to that, he thought he was winning. But God's standard was much higher. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Perhaps this lawyer had loved God with a lot of his heart, most of his soul and strength, some of his mind, but all? But that is the standard. All. As Paul later on puts in Galatians 3, 10 and following, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, says Paul. God's standard is to do and continue to do which points out a second way the lawyer would have fallen short. He did so firstly because he hadn't loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And secondly, he would not have continuously done so, but would rather have done it in fits and starts. The lawyer's standard was one thing, but God's standard was another. And in answering Jesus' question, the lawyer spoke well, absolutely, but he spoke better than he knew, and he spoke much better than he lived. Which leads to the next point, what this passage says about self-justification. But he, desiring to justify himself, that's probably the key phrase in the entire passage. He, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance the priest was going down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite. He came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine and then he set him on his own animal brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, 
the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The fact that the lawyer's standards were far short of those required by God is indicated by his second answer, his second question to Jesus. Who is my neighbor? As the passage says, the lawyer, his purpose in asking this question is to justify himself. He probably felt that he had the first commandment, love for God, all wrapped up, so he doesn't even bother with that one. But then there's his second part, the bit about the neighbor. That one was a little more tricky. After all, neighbor is a rather loose and ambiguous kind of word, isn't it? So the lawyer, in effect, asked Jesus for a list or a definition. He wants Jesus to tell him who is and is not to be considered a neighbor. However, just as was the case with the first question, the second one here is not a genuine question either. I think this lawyer already knew or thought he knew what the answer was to his question. Your neighbor was obviously your fellow Jew, right? And so the lawyer was probably expecting to hear Jesus say those words and be confirmed in his own self-righteousness. That was the plan. But then Jesus, as he often does, messed everything up. He didn't say the right words. Instead, he told a story, a disturbing story. A story that changed the very definition of the word neighbor. And in changing the definitions, Jesus undermined this man's whole approach to self-justification. The reason this lawyer had been able for so long to function and feel that his approach to loving God and his neighbor were okay was precisely because he got to define the words in his way. Loving your neighbor is pretty easy as long as you are not using God's dictionary. The quickest and surest path to self-justification or self-righteousness is to just change all the definitions. Because at the end of the day, the one who controls the definitions wins. We see it all the time in our own day. I mean, I don't want to go into the whole issue at the moment, but the fact is that the pro-abortion argument hinges precariously on the power of definition. The single most important question in the entire debate, and the one that remains unsettled even though it is the most important question, is what is a person? Or more to the point, when is a person? As long as the unborn fetus is not considered to be a person by definition... And what you do with it is regarded as less important than if it is a person. The same principle comes to play in all kinds of debates today about gender and sexuality going on around us. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Is it even right to have binary determinations of these things at all? Whoever controls the definitions controls the debate. And of course, on a more personal level, we all know this, don't we? We know how this works. We all know the power of definition. What do you mean I'm lying? I never promised... Dot, dot, dot. I'm not cheating on my taxes. That's a legitimate deduction. I'm not gossiping. I'm simply trying to explain and describe what is going on. Whose dictionary are you using? 
The lawyer wants to justify himself by restricting and redefining the meaning of the word neighbor. If he can do that, then he might just pull off this whole law-keeping business. However, Jesus does not allow himself to be ensnared by this narrow and manipulative question. Instead of answering the question outright, he dismisses it and he tells a story that reveals precisely why the lawyer had no hope of justifying himself and obtaining eternal life by rule-keeping. And that leads to the next thing I want you to see in this passage, what it says about love. In order to teach this lawyer something about love, and specifically about love for one's neighbor, Jesus tells a story, a story about a Jewish man who's robbed and beaten and left to die. His fate is ignored by a passing priest and then progressing down the social scale a bit by a Levite, a worker in the temple, until finally he's discovered by a Samaritan who takes care of him. But you see, here's the key. It's not a good Samaritan. It might say the Good Samaritan is a heading before this passage in your Bible. You might have that written in your Bible. But you need to know that those titles in your Bible are not part of the original manuscripts. They are supplied by the publisher of your Bible to make for easier reading. But they're an interpretation, such as the case here. The word good is not there in the Greek. What's more, to call this story the parable of the Good Samaritan is particularly unhelpful because it prevents us from hearing this story as the lawyer would have heard it. In our own day, the word Samaritan is a nice word. To call someone a Samaritan is the equivalent of calling him or her a great humanitarian. So when we take our contemporary usage of the word and we read that back into the text, we get to the part about the Samaritan and we think, well, of course the Samaritans stop to help. That's what Samaritans do. That's what good Samaritans are like. Except they weren't. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. Violently hated each other. To read this as the good Samaritan is just plain wrong. And you see, Luke's gospel even sets us up so that we don't read it that way if we're paying attention. You may or may not remember, but in Luke 9, verses 51 to 56, just before this, there is a story of how a Samaritan village rejected Jesus. Why? Because, here's the reason it's given, because he was heading for Jerusalem. That's it. Here's Jesus going around doing wonderful things for people, preaching the kingdom of God, healing both Jews and non-Jews, and then these obstinate racist Samaritan people reject him sight unseen simply and purely because he was a Jew. So the effect is, after you read that account in Luke, you kind of have this bad taste in your mouth with regard to the Samaritans. As a reader, you don't think very much of them and then lo and behold, just a few paragraphs later, you're confronted by another Samaritan. And there's this tension because you know what they just did to Jesus. And yet here in this story, you find yourself uncomfortably sticking up for a Samaritan, siding with him, and championing him as a hero. So again, if you're thinking about this story as the account of the good, kind, neighborly Samaritan, you're not hearing it properly. So let me, with the help of one commentator, help you hear it more like the lawyer would likely have heard it. 
A family of disheveled, unkempt individuals was stranded by the side of a major road on a Sunday morning. They were in obvious distress. The mother was sitting on a tattered suitcase, hair unbrushed, clothes in disarray. A glazed look to her eyes, holding a smelly, barely dressed, crying baby. The father was unshaven, dressed in a tracksuit, a picture of despair as he worked to corral two other restless children. Beside them was a rundown old car packed with all their worldly possessions that had obviously just given up the ghost. Down the road came a car driven by the local PCA pastor. He was on his way to church. And though the father of the stranded family waved frantically, the minister reasoned that there were, as there were a whole lot of people depending on him to show up that morning for worship, he simply couldn't afford to stop. So he acted as if he didn't see him. He kept driving, and as he drove on, he comforted himself with the thought that it was a pretty busy road, and surely someone else with lesser responsibilities than he would come along soon to help these poor, unfortunate people bless their hearts. Soon came another car, and again the father waved furiously, but to no avail. The car was driven by a local high school principal heading out of town for a week-long conference on continuing education. She, too, acted as if she did not see them, kept her eyes straight ahead, and as she drove away, she looked in her rearview mirror and felt a little bit of guilt, but soon comforted herself with the thought that it was kind of a dangerous part of town and that in all likelihood these people were probably just a set-up waiting to take advantage of the first person foolish enough to stop. In fact, she remembered reading about something like that in the paper that took place in a nearby city recently. Finally, a third car came along with several men who appeared to be practitioners of the Muslim faith and were dressed accordingly. When they saw the family's distress, they stopped, offered the family a ride, and took them to a local motel where they paid for a week's lodging. Then they took the father to help him find some local temp work so that he could cover the cost of repairing the car, and they went and bought a week's worth of groceries to tide them over while they waited for the car to be fixed. When you tell the story that way, it feels different. It kind of gets to you a little bit more. It makes you feel a little uncomfortable. You don't like the implications of a story like that. Who knows? Maybe it makes you a little angry. See, it's not until you hear the story with a Muslim or an atheist or, you know, you fill in the blank with whoever makes you feel the most uncomfortable. But it's not until you hear the story being about that kind of person that you hear it like this lawyer would have heard it. Because for him, the Samaritan was not at all someone he would have ever imagined to be a hero. Quite the opposite. So Jesus, in telling this story that way, he's getting in this man's face a little bit. The story made everybody the lawyer admired look terrible. And the one person he despised looked great in the story. So why does Jesus tell this story? Why does he tell this story in response to the question, who is my neighbor? I think he tells this story because the question, who is my neighbor, is simply the wrong question. It's the wrong question. It's a question that attempts to define love for neighbor within very narrow limits. Which is why Jesus dismisses the question, and in fact, he does more than that. He changes the question. 
The question, who is my neighbor, is transformed by the end of the parable into Jesus' counter question, who was the neighbor in this story? As the commentators have pointed out, this transformation of the question is very important. Because by transforming the question, Jesus changes the subject from neighbors to neighborliness. By changing the question around, Jesus is showing that love for one's neighbor is not determined by who or what is happening out there, but by a decision that is made in here. I'll say that again. Love for one's neighbor is not ultimately a function of who is out there or what is happening out there. It is determined by a prior decision to love made in here. The starting place is not to ask whether the person before you is worthy. But rather, you start with a decision to love. Period. I'm going to love. See, if the Samaritan in the story had started with this arbitrary definition of who and who was not his neighbor, he would never have stopped to help because a Jew would have never made his list. But because he decided to love, then his definition of neighbor was open-ended. A neighbor was simply somebody in need. And where there is need, love responds. It may involve risk, inconvenience, absolutely. Disappointment. It may and probably will cost you something. Maybe a great deal. Maybe you will never recover from your losses, actually. And so the story of the Samaritan would have been a difficult story for the lawyer to take. It would have been very awkward for him to ever imagine himself acting in such a way toward a temple-rejecting, idolatrous, rebellious, spiteful, Jew-hating Samaritan. It was a story that left him exposed. It was a story that left him with nowhere to hide. This lawyer has come to Jesus looking to be justified by his own version of law-keeping. And Jesus, in the telling of this story, shows him just how far from the mark he truly is. Even in the simpler matter of loving his neighbor, he's fallen far short. How much more would he have fallen short of a more challenging command to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength? And so when Jesus sends this man away with go and do likewise, he sends, I believe, a chastened man. A man who has just had all of his excuses taken away from him. A man who's been set a task that goes against everything he has ever been taught or practiced or believed. The lawyer came to Jesus thinking that law-keeping would save him. Indeed, thinking that his law-keeping had already saved him. In response, Jesus challenges his assumptions and his definitions. And he sends him away to do what he will never be able to do. Put it another way, Jesus, rather than argue with this man, which would go nowhere, decides to make use of the momentum of his own desire for self-justification to carry him to the end of himself. Because Jesus knows that when this man gets the end of himself, he will see the futility of trying to justify himself. Because Jesus knows this man cannot and he will not give in the way that Jesus has indicated that he must. 
He will not and cannot love the sort of people that Jesus has challenged him to love by means of this story. And so he will come to the end of himself. That's what happened to Martin Luther, isn't it? If you know his story at all, he he wanted desperately to justify himself before God by his own good works, and he couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Got to a breaking point, a point of despair, because he couldn't meet the standard. And there, in that place of despair, he came to see and understand a truth that had escaped him, and which his own church had managed to completely obscure, that people are made right with God by faith in what Jesus has done, and not by what they do themselves. We are saved by Jesus' goodness, not by our own. And that truth is certainly the heart of this story. And it is necessary to highlight that fact since it is often the case, as some writers have pointed out, that this story is misread and taken out of context. It typically typically gets treated as a morality story. The temptation is to merely use this story as an example of or a motivator for being helpful to people. And sure, there's an element of that in the story. But the way you get to it is all important. Because if you neglect to point out how this story shows that we cannot make ourselves right with God by our own works, then the danger is that in teaching this story as a morality tale, people will go out and they will attempt to do the very thing that this story was written to fight against. That is, the belief that we can justify ourselves before God. By our own actions, we can earn and merit his good favor toward us. But we can't. Only Jesus can pull that off. That is what the cross was about. Him getting the rap for our sin, us getting the credit for his good works. It was the most uneven trade in the history of the universe. It was uneven, but it was not unfair. Because he willingly took it on himself. He wanted to do it. However, just as it is a mistake to run past the message of justification to get to the moral aspects of this story, it is also a mistake to run to what this passage says about justification, but completely ignore its implications for our life and practice. Because when all is said and done, once you do understand that we are justified by what God has done and you are, you're still left, you're still left with the challenge of Jesus' definition of what a neighbor is and what neighborliness looks like. A neighbor is anyone in need. Neighborliness is a prior decision to love that is internally and not externally determined. We are to imitate the compassion and colorblind and context blind and social ramifications blind mercy of the Samaritan. Not because it will make us right with God, but because we have been made right. We respond to the world in this way because this is the way that God has responded to us. Showing kindness and mercy toward us despite our terrible selves. Because he has decided to love us. And not because we have shown ourselves to be worthy of it. And so we in turn, we see that and we respond with mercy and compassion. And as we have opportunity, when people ask what we're doing, when they ask us why we're doing it, we tell them. Because in all likelihood, if they're 
unchurched or merely religious, it's a good chance they're going to assume we're doing it to earn the favor of God. But we're not. We're not doing it because, for those reasons, we're only doing it because that is how He has been. How He continues to be toward us. He is our hero. And we want to be like Him. Just as we have responded to His mercy, we tell our family and friends that there are unending supplies of that same mercy available to all who will come and avail themselves of it. There is a water that truly quenches. There is the very bread of life itself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us as you have and continuing to love us as you do. Help us to imitate you imperfectly, but imitate you nonetheless because we are convinced of your great love for us, because we are convinced of our great security in you, because we are grateful because we want others to know and share the blessing and the kindness and the mercy that have rocked our world and completely changed our lives. Help us to serve for those reasons, be convinced of those truths. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to take up an offering for those that want to support the ministries of this church and then a number of ministries that we support together as a church.